Let's, uh, let's turn our attention to our uh, teaching series, Kaleidoscopic Gospel, in which we are week four of Kaleidoscopic Gospel. We have been in Acts chapter 16. If you want to start to turn your way there to Acts chapter 16, verse 16 is where we're going to be today. And this Kaleidoscopic Gospel series, what we've been focusing on is how the gospel, the good news, the message of Christianity is not a megaphone monologue uh, like I heard uh, down in Hollywood a couple weeks ago with a young guy who had all of the fervor and energy in the world uh, just kind of shouting through a megaphone of like, repent and love Jesus, and nobody cared. Uh, it's not a canned speech of some kind of you know, built-out presentation for spiritual truths, and let me walk you through each of these, that the gospel, in fact, is this news, this announcement that as we see in Acts 16, as you've seen in your story and my story, if you identify as a Christian, is the gospel meets diverse people in their diverse needs, their longings and their wants. That Jesus and who he is is not simply just some objective reality that we intellectually give ourselves to, but actually that Jesus is this, this, this person who meets us in the midst of our deepest longings. This revelation of God in Christ, in Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, that God is now in Christ king and he is at work and saving this broken world, saving broken humans, putting things to right, both you and me in this world and our invitation to be a part of God's work in this world today. The kaleidoscopic gospel is, is uh, our hope is to kind of spin the kaleidoscope of the gospel as it were, allowing ourselves to take in these different aspects of who Jesus is and what he's all about, about truth last week or beauty two weeks ago, power in just a few minutes today and hope next week. Even more than that is not just spinning the kaleidoscope, not just looking at the gospel with these new lenses, but also asking for those of us that identify as Christians, what does this mean for our mission as the church? This work of evangelism, of inviting other people to see Jesus for who he is, what does the kaleidoscope mean as we bring it out into our city? With all that being said, uh, we're going to read Acts 16, beginning in verse 16 through 24 today. I'm going to invite everybody here to join me in standing as we read. This is similar to how many of you raise your hands as we're singing songs in worship, or even during our response time, you might come forward and pray on your knees. That as we stand, as we read, is a way of with our bodies identify, speaking to something. And that is for us as Christians, we believe that God is at work speaking through these Scriptures. Acts 16, verse 16. Let's read this together. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She kept on doing this for many days, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. 
Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Let's pray. And so, Father, we are grateful for uh, your word, as always, that God, that we believe that, that even in these, these ancient writings, that you, even today, are still speaking and inviting us into more and more of what it means to be your people. God, today as we look at this, the idea of this, the power of the gospel, our prayer is that this power would be experienced by us today. That like this slave girl, that the freedom of what the, the kingship of Jesus means would actually meet us in our lives, and that we would carry that out into our city. In your name we pray, amen. Well, you may be seated. Well, if you've been with us over the series, I hope you're beginning to see the difference of what's happening over the course of Acts 16. Back at the beginning of our series, we looked at how Timothy came to faith through beauty of the gospel, specifically the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of, of what it means that Jesus is king, as that was showing up in his relationships to the church, with Paul, with his mother and his grandmother. It was all about beauty in the context of relationships. Now the gospel is found there. Last week with Lydia, we found her discovering the truth of the gospel through this intellectual conversation with the Apostle Paul as they're talking about the Jewish scriptures and the story of Israel and, and the Creator God and how Jesus has all come together, but it was all about the truth of the gospel. In the story that we just read, there was no Paul saying, let's enter ourselves into a relationship with a slave girl, or in this moment, here's this, you know, spiritually oppressed girl. Let's have a conversation about the truth of the gospel and the creator God. It is an experience of power. Do you see that the kaleidoscope, the different little pieces of how the gospel is meeting different people in different ways? Now, I had kind of assumed in reading it, and, and uh, it was my wife Erin this morning when she read, was reading over the passage, she was like, so what does this one have to do with evangelism? Any of this catch that with all of our talk about evangelism, people coming to faith, what we have here is maybe an, an exorcism, but we don't see baptism, right? We don't see her praying like a sinner's prayer or anything like that. And so I, I just want to point out that although with the slave girl's story, we don't explicitly have this reference to conversion or her baptism, the fact is that her deliverance is sandwiched between Lydia last week, next week, this jailer that we're going to look at, both of them, their conversion and baptism, and this is all part of this larger uh, Macedonian call of going to preach the gospel. And so I, that we can infer uh, that what's happening within the story of this slave girl here is, is what we could call conversion, her coming to saving faith in Jesus. Even more than that, just to make this simply, as we're looking at the story of what just happened, what else would we call someone experiencing deliverance through the proclamation of the power of God in the name of Jesus Christ other than evangelism? other than preaching the gospel. And so what we have here is maybe exorcism, maybe evangelism, or maybe a little bit of both. But for Paul, it's specifically this idea of the power of the gospel that we see at work in what we just read today. And even more than that, for Paul, this is what was powerfully at work within his entire life and ministry. For Paul, the power of the gospel was the whole basis for all of his preaching. Romans uh, chapter one, you'll see it here behind me. Paul opens his letter to Romans and he says, I am eager to preach the gospel for it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul's excitement, his eagerness to preach the gospel 
the work of evangelism that we've been talking about, that you and I as Christians have been called to do the same, to go into our city preaching and telling people about the goodness of who Jesus is. For Paul, he saw that message as the power of God. Now, when you think about the creator God with all of the quarks and all of the craziness of creation, the smallest of atoms to the biggest of stars, when we think about that scope and you want to talk about the power of God, maybe we'd use language about the power of God being gravity or time or maybe, you know, interstellar love, you know, that, that like transcends love and gravity. Anyone? No, time and go. Okay, cool. Thank you, guys. Science fiction. Or maybe uh, for some of us, uh, Chef's Table. I was just rewatching this a couple nights ago. Uh, Chef's Table, there's a Korean Buddhist monk, and it's a whole episode about soy sauce. Anyone see this episode? And it's one of my favorite. I have screenshots of her quotes because it just speaks so powerfully to me. She says that soy sauce is eternal, and soy sauce is life. Like, she's, like, alluding to soy sauce is the power of God, and I, I'm going to get that tattooed on my chest. Like, soy sauce is eternal, soy sauce is life. What, what is for you when you think about the, the power of God in the world? What do you identify as the main way that God is, at, that the creator is at work within the world? Is it gravity? Is it time? Is it love for Paul? He sees the gospel, what God has done in Jesus as the power of God displayed within the world. As he says, for all who believe, it is salvation. It is the healing and deliverance and forgiveness and restoration of human beings and of this world is through the gospel. He says it's the revelation of the put the righteousness, which is, you know, Bible talk. So we never, no one ever says righteousness anymore. It is the, the put togetherness of, of God, how God is putting again togethers back together. He is putting things to right. We've talked about this in our justice series. The word for righteousness is the same Greek word for justice. For in it, the justice of God is revealed, how he is making things right again. So for many of you here that you have identified as a Christian, you're here because in some way you've experienced this to be true in your life. That this, the news of what God has done in Christ, that through Jesus' perfect life, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension and his promised return, that story and how that story means something for my story is the power of God at work in your life. That it was the before and after of your story. It is the thing that motivates you through your life. It is why you give your Sunday mornings to this when you, could, you live in Los Angeles. You could be anywhere on a Sunday morning and you are here. Because in some way, you've resonated with the reality that the gospel is the power of God in your life, even in those seasons when it may not feel that way. For others of, here, for others of you that are here, maybe this is in some way what's brought you here with us this morning. As you're looking for some power of God kind of thing in your life, a deep acknowledgement in your story right now and where you're at, naming just powerless. That is how I feel in the face of what I'm going through. I do not have the energy. I do not have the strength to pull off. And so I need something outside of myself. I need some power of God. And what we find in this story is that the power of the gospel is the thing that we're invited to find, the way that God wants to work within your life and within the world. It's to work through who Jesus is and what he's done. And so today, we're gonna look at the power of the gospel in the experience of this oppressed slave girl, asking ourselves, what does it mean to experience this power for ourselves? But then also, then how do we bring this sort of power out into our city? 
So two things we're going to be looking at, kind of a map for our time together today. As we find the power of the gospel, you'll see it behind me here, is Jesus sourced and Jesus shaped, which sounds obvious. <laughs> like the gospel, all about Jesus. Oh, it's sourced in Jesus and it's shaped by Jesus. Of course, obvious. The more time that I've spent on it this week, these are the two things that this story wants to highlight and ensure that we don't just assume and look over. The power of the gospel finds its power in Jesus, sourced in who he is. And also for those of us that receive and walk in that power, it is to be shaped like Jesus. It's a little bit obvious, but I think it deserves some meditation. Look back with me at verse 16. If you have your Bibles open, you can follow with me here. Where our story sets back up, where we find Paul and company returning to the place of prayer as they were last week. They're going, they was, this was a good spot for conversation with people in the way of Jesus. And so they return to the place of prayer. But as they're on their way there, they get met by this slave girl who has this spirit of divination. That is, she is, um, and then it says that her owners uh, had brought much gain for themselves by fortune telling. This slave girl from the onset is someone that we find being oppressed at multiple levels both through this spiritual oppression of having this spirit of divination within her, but then also these kind of, um, one scholar put it, these occultic pimps, in the sense that what they've done is they're taking this girl in the midst of her darkness and in the midst of being spiritually oppressed by some kind of spiritual darkness, some spiritual power, is they are using that for their own financial profit. This spirit of divination is a deep, the, the word that's behind this is connected to this kind of like, ventriloquism, this something speaking through her that's not her. So what we find in this slave girl is that she is, her life is speaking the words of someone else and she is living her life for the benefit of someone else. She's like the exact opposite of Lydia from last week. Lydia, who is uh, independent and affluent. She was, I mean, purple goods. She's making all the money and she's investigating who Jesus is. She's on the opposite side of the scale where she is entirely powerless And so Paul almost seems to understand that this isn't going to take, you know, just a conversation with her about the truth of the gospel. It will require something else. And even more in this kind of her speaking out through the spirit of, of divination, the irony being that somehow she's speaking to the truth of the gospel, even without experiencing it for herself. Whatever's going on, this spirit of divination is identifying Paul and Silas and and the rest of these uh, missionaries as the ones who are coming to proclaim the way of salvation, that from the most high God. She's saying the truth of the gospel at some level. That what these guys are coming to talk about is the way of salvation of the most high God. Now, whether that's an appeal to Zeus as being the most high God or the true creator God, it's up for debate. But the idea that's simply there is she at some level is speaking to the, the, the truth of the gospel, but she has never experienced the power for herself. I just want to like, before we move on, just name the, the place that she's at and identify that some of you may feel exactly like that if we slow down long enough. She is someone that based off of her words is actively saying that some level of the truth of the gospel. And yet her, her life is one of enslavement and oppression that though she is speaking the truth of the gospel, she herself has not experienced the, truth, the power of the gospel in her life. There are some of us that that, that is, I, I, just, I, would, I would implore you to ask, what is, what is the experience of the power of the gospel in my life? Is that there? Or am I, am I actually far more bound up and oppressed like this than I think? 
speaking but not experiencing. So she's continuing to say these things of talking about how these guys are servants of the Most High God. They're coming to proclaim the way of salvation. And it keeps happening for many days. And it says, Paul became greatly annoyed. What's going on here? So a couple of things of, of ways that we can understand this. The first is that Paul's annoyed because he understands that actually not all press is good press. That even the truth of the gospel, when being proclaimed out of an abusive system, still distorts the gospel in some way. That it can lead to confusion about when he starts to actually start talking about who Jesus is, that based off this woman being enslaved and, and wrapped up in, in these demons and, and spirits or whatever's going on, that Paul goes, I don't want anybody to confuse that these two things are go hand in hand. Even more than that, it just depends on, you translating that as greatly annoyed, or it can be translated, the, the Greek that, that Luke, the author of Acts, was writing in, is, it can be translated as troubled or even disturbed. So the question is, is, on one level, it may be that he's annoyed. On one level, it may be that he is troubled and disturbed by what he's seeing here in this woman. This young girl is, is being spiritually oppressed. She's being oppressed by humans. And, and Paul, after days and days of seeing her, he can't take it anymore. And so what does he do? He turns and says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And this feels a little strange to us, like magic kind of stuff, right? Invoking the name of like some powerful person. Now, this is strange, but it even continues today. When you talk, when you, someone recommends you go to some restaurant or some store and they know the owner or something. They're like, oh, just mention my name. Like, they'll take care of you, right? I, I experienced this when my wife and my kids were back in North Carolina. I got to do uh, dinner with, uh, a lot of you guys know Winston uh, in our church, uh, over in Santa Monica. And so I beat him there. He had gotten the reservation. And so I walk up, and they're like, hi, you know, what's your name? Brian. And they kind of, like, look at their, like, thing, and they kind of look at me. I was like, oh, that's, I'm, uh, I'm here with Winston. Winston is the, the, oh, Winston, yeah. So apparently he, he only eats at this restaurant. So like they, they know him and they like, oh yeah, they, they like, Winston has all the influence in the world. And so they walk me out to this table and they sit me down and they're like, you know, I'm getting sparkling water. They're getting me all taken care of. Oh, we love Winston, we can't wait. And they're taking care of me like I'm a regular here and I've never been to this restaurant before. Like just invoking the name of Winston brought all of this stuff. And then when he came and sat down, he starts talking to me how like, oh, they technically were like, you know, sold out for the night. And they, they pulled an extra table and chair out of storage. Like I'm sitting on, I realize I'm sitting on this kind of like rickety chair. And I'm like, it's a different chair than everybody else. That's how much they love Winston. So on one level, there's like this weird magic reading. But there's, there's a truth that's here that, that when we invoke the name of someone who has influence or power in a particular place or way, it opens up new possibilities that weren't there. Like if I would have gone to the restaurant by myself, I could not have gotten a table. They were booked for the night. But with the mention of the name of Winston, the holy name of Winston, I was able to get in. And so what we have happening here is that Jesus, in the midst of this kind of spiritual conflict that's happening here, Paul names the name of Jesus, invoking the power and the influence of the name of Jesus. Now in this is a simple reminder the power of the gospel is sourced in Jesus. <laughs> that might not be surprising to some of you. But Paul's command, what he's doing here, is he's, he's bringing the name of Jesus into this story. 
The power of the gospel is wrapped up in Jesus. It is what the whole thing is about. And that might seem silly or obvious, but so often we place uh, the power of the gospel in evangelism within the American church around intellect, around having the smartest guy to talk about Jesus, around having some level of influence or a successful person or a charismatic celebrity. You know how I know this is true? Every single time Kanye has like a Christian single or Bieber or you name it, everybody's like, Jesus is coming back tomorrow now. As if like the resurrection of Jesus and how he's been at work through the Holy Spirit and the triune God is at work within each and every single one of us bringing, that like Jesus was waiting for Bieber to get on board. Or like now we've got Kanye, we're actually gonna be able to do something. Like I... It's silly, but like we so regularly place the emphasis on where the power of the proclamation, the evangelism, people coming to see Jesus in like the world's ways of like doing playbook and influence. Paul, Acts 16 right here wants to say, hey, you know whose name actually carries a lot of influence and power in these conversations is when you shut up and talk about Jesus. And this doesn't have to come in the shape of like an exorcism as we see here. There is power of bringing Jesus' name into a situation, into a person's story where it hasn't been said before. To ask, kind of like Sesame Street, like I've heard all week, I wonder what if, what if the person of Jesus actually brings something new into your story in a way that you've never seen before? One of my favorite pastors and authors who recently passed away, Eugene Peterson, he used to say, sometimes I think... my job as a pastor is basically just to say the name Jesus in people's stories where it hasn't been said yet. That the work of a pastor is just me getting to know you, me understanding your story, and me saying Jesus in this story that hasn't been said before. That's true with pastors. And I think that's, at the end of it, what most evangelism, good evangelism is, is us getting to know people in the midst of whatever it is they're looking for and saying Jesus in a story where it hasn't been said before. And that's what happens here. This girl's story is Jesus' name hasn't been said here before. She's been locked down into this oppression from humans and from spirits. And with a mention of Jesus' name, it comes out, it, it came out of her that very hour. Kind of this way of saying on the spot. The power of Jesus' name immediately casts out the spirit. The power of God, like we just saw back in Romans, is revealing the righteousness of God. What does the righteousness of God look like? It looks like this woman that's freed from slavery. It looks like this woman that's freed from spiritual oppression. Now I want to tease these out a little bit more because we're asking in Acts 16, what does it mean for us to be embedded, embedded missionaries? Is that in this exorcism, we have three overlapping pieces of how the power of the gospel comes. It's in words, uh, you'll see this behind me, in works and in wonders. In this story, they're overlapping, so we kind of have to tease them out a little bit. We see the power of the gospel come in words, in works, and in wonders. It comes in words as Paul speaks the name of Jesus in a story where it hasn't been said yet. It shows up in works in the fact that this woman is freed from slavery to these men, and it shows up in wonders as she is freed, not just from her her spiritual or her human oppression, but from this spiritual oppression. These demons are cast out. All three of these here, the words, works, and wonders are unified. They are one thing happening at one moment. And this immediately challenges how so many of us think about what it means to preach the gospel. Depending on your tradition, depending on where you come from, when I say preach the gospel, there is some little addendum that you are likely to put on. The one that most of us get from Instagram is this. Preach the gospel, 
Use words if necessary. How many of you have ever heard this quote that you like in the church world? And so you've heard this. Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Some of you have posted this maybe before, and so I'm gonna tear this apart. (laughs) Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. What this identifies is that the works of the church and of of each of us are superior in the work of bringing the power of God, that works are superior. This quote, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, is falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. By all counts in every single scholars who have read all of his stuff, that Francis of Assisi never said anything like this. In fact, all of his writings would seem to say the exact opposite. And that is what we find in Romans 10, that the gospel is an announcement and a declaration of what God has done in Christ. As good news, as an announcement, it includes and involves and necessitates words. Paul in Romans 10 says, how will people be saved if they never hear the gospel? And how will they hear the gospel if no one ever preaches? You see, to say preach the gospel, use words if necessary, is in effect to say you never preach the gospel. Now, on the other side of this, though, are those of us who swing to the other side, and we say, preach the gospel, use works if necessary. And what this does is we see the words of the gospel as being the superior message. All of it is about what we say and the words that we give and, and works and kind of what we do in the world, whether that's social justice or caring for the poor, that those are kind of like, at best, advertisements. They kind of adorn the gospel, but they're not really connected to the gospel. The problem with this is, once again, James chapter 2, where uh, James, writing the letter, says, man, what good is it if you tell people, man, go in the peace and the goodness of the gospel, and they're still naked and hungry? For Paul, the power of the gospel, which displays the put-rightness of how God is making things right, must invoke not just put-together hearts through the preaching of the gospel, but put-together lives through the works of the church. John Stott, he caught this all the way back in 1975 when he talked about when we see kind of the works of the church as merely being an advertisement for the gospel, he equated it to being like sugar put on a pill, like bait put on a hook, like hypocrisy put on philanthropy. That in fact, that our works and our care for the poor are not just simply for the fact that we can, you know, put bait on the hook to get people to come to Jesus. We are doing them because that is what the gospel means and brings into our city. And then finally, the one that all of us would agree with most likely is we say preach the gospel, use wonders if necessary. And that's, you know, that, the wonders over there, that's for those crazy Pentecostals. Y'all got your exorcisms, y'all got your healings, y'all got your, your visions and your dreams and your prophetic stuff. But, but here's what we see. In the New Testament, works, wonders, and words are all happening alongside one another. Now, wonders, Paul isn't having exorcisms left, right, and center, and neither should we expect those to be happening every single Sunday. However, the New Testament, the scriptures show us that they, though not common, are consistent, and we should pursue and expect them as such. That there are times when the Spirit chooses to bring healing, a vision, a word, a freedom from something, in a way that we wouldn't have expected. And so for those of us here that are part of Collective, you identify yourself as an embedded missionary in the city of Los Angeles. Jesus is wanting to display the power of the gospel through your words, through your works, and even at times through wonders. And the question for you to journal, to think, to pray about is what do those things look like within the relationships and the places that I find myself?
What does it look like to bring the power of the gospel through my words and through my actions and my works and what I do within the city? What does it look like to begin praying for some of these, one, these, these things that happen like that? Even more as we're gathered here as the church today, I would just ask you in a moment as we move to our time of response, what words, works, or wonders are needed within your story? To kind of just set aside outside of this room for a moment or even everyone around you and just to identify within yourself. Where's the power of the gospel needed in your story today? Because the gospel is not just the beginning point of the Christian story. It is the entire story. It's what we live in. And that power is always making itself available in new ways to us. Some of you over the past few weeks have suffered from some form of spiritual oppression. This past year has brought out or maybe had a relapse into some form of addiction something that you've gone through in some form of shame that you've been unable to break free from, some fear, some guilt, some sickness you're in the midst of right now. Like this enslaved girl, some abusive relationship that you find yourself in, or these feelings of neglect, these feelings of all of them, powerlessness. But the power of the gospel wants to meet you. And my prayer is that as we move in our response time in a minute, that we might actually experience some of that here. But for us first to name what that is within your story today. Because in our response time through prayer or maybe through a pastoral conversation this week, that we as a community, we want to be through the gospel of Jesus, partnering with him and putting things to right. And that means praying for one another. That means us enacting and working alongside one another. And so my prayer is that we might have and experience some of that today. But here's what's interesting as, as we kind of move to our second and last piece. is Unlike the other stories that we followed in Kaleidoscopic Gospel that kind of follow, you know, Timothy then joining the mission with Paul or Lydia last week, how we found her getting baptized and then her family's getting baptized with her and then she's, you know, opening up her home for the church. The story doesn't continue with the slave girl. She just kind of gets left on the sidelines. Luke, our author, narrator here, he, keep, he pans the camera and he continues to follow not Lydia's story, but Paul and Silas as something happens, which at first glance seems like we're moving on from talking about the power of the gospel, but in fact, he's zooming in even more. Verse 19 says, when the owners saw that their hope for gain was gone, that word gone is so fun. In the Greek that Luke was writing, and it's the same word as the demon coming out, and then in that moment, he came out. The word, it's the Greek word for exorcism. So these, these owners don't see the spirit of divination has been exorcised. When they see the, the, the slave girl, they see their hope for gain, their profit's been exorcised. And so what do they do is they seize Paul and Silas and they, they react not with awe over what God has just done in their midst, but anger and greed. And so they drag Paul and Silas before the leaders. They start pulling from bigotry, talking about these Jews, their cultural political identity, comparing them to us Romans, and deceit about these advocating of customs that are not lawful, denouncing and convicting them. They pull them under all these false bases. And what's just, man, this is one thing that really stuck out to me this week, is noticing the reason for why they're pulled forward is not... Like in other places, uh, like in um, so the Areopagus, where they get arrested, Paul gets arrested a lot. So I, sorry, I had trouble remembering all the times he gets arrested. But one of the times he gets arrested, he gets pulled forward, and the whole charge is these guys are saying there is a king other than Caesar. And they're saying that Jesus is king. And so the reason why they're getting arrested, the reason why they're then persecuted is because they're saying there is, a, like the essence of the gospel, Jesus is king and Caesar is not. What's 
interesting here is the reason that they're getting arrested and dealt with is not the essence of the gospel, but the economic implications of the gospel. Notice that, that, that the main reason why they're arrested, why they're being charged, why they're being dealt with is not these guys are saying Jesus is king, but they're saying these guys have taken our money because the implications of the gospel have so disrupted this city. Here's the reality. At some point, nobody actually cares if you believe Jesus is king until that actually means something against the status quo of a city. It begins to upset the way that a city works. That's when things get messy. This happened in just a chapter over in the city of Ephesus where Paul preaching the gospel, everybody and almost everybody in the city comes to faith. And as they do, they quit worshiping these idols. And you have all of these guys that used to make all the idols to the goddess of Artemis, that they lose their minds. And they start freaking out. Why? Nobody's buying our stuff anymore. And so this riot breaks out caused by them specifically over the fact that these guys have brought this Jesus guy in and Jesus is now cutting us off from our economic means. There's a reality that sometimes the persecution that Christians face is not gonna be simply because you're saying Jesus is king, but because you're enacting what his kingship looks like. But notice that in verse 23, the crowds then joined them in attacking Paul and Silas. The magistrates tore the garments, the clothes off Paul and Silas. They're stripped bare and then given orders to beat them with rods. All that Paul and Silas are going through. They inflict many blows upon them. Then they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and he fastened their feet in the stocks. So what in the world just go, what just happened? Paul and Silas here are silent in the face of all the accusations. No defense that they made. Even more than that, these guys just drove out a demon. And now before these guys, it's just, where's that power at now? And next week, what we're going to find is actually a vindication on the other side of all of this. But in this moment, it seems like we've moved from all of the power that these apostles have bringing the gospel to the city of Philippi to this moment of them having absolutely no power at all. They're weak and they're powerless vulnerable. See, what's happening here is that Luke is not moving on from talking about the power of the gospel, but he's actually continuing it. As we see Paul and Silas almost eerily replaying another story. So ask yourself, where is there another story of someone who has brought the power of God into a community, but then as a result of that had false charges brought against them, brought and dragged before the rulers and the crowd joining in against them, where they were stripped of their clothing, they were beaten, then imprisoned and guarded by Romans, that they could save others but couldn't save themselves. And even a spoiler into next week, that they would return from this place after some miraculous earthquake that would open up the way out and then followed by their vindication, them being seen as being in the right. What other story? Luke here is utilizing this design pattern and he actually uses key Greek words that go back to his gospel. That what he's trying to do is he's trying to show Paul and Silas as re-walking and almost them entering into Jesus's passion themselves. That kind of it's almost this kind of filtered overlay where we see Paul and Silas and their steps and the actions that are happening to them are almost eerily similar to and overlapping with Jesus's own crucifixion and death. What Luke's doing through this design pattern is showing that the power of the gospel is 
shaped by Jesus. Specifically him who, though he had all power and privileges, refused to exploit those power, that power for gain, but gave himself willingly going to death on the cross. And now Paul and Silas are retracing and replaying that. As Paul himself would later write, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We think of imitate, you know, follow me as I follow Christ with Paul's language. And we think he's talking about, you know, the movies that you watch or something like that. That context, what Paul's talking about there in 1 Corinthians 11, is about deferential, self-giving love. It's about walking in the way of Jesus, what, what we could call cruciformity, being shaped like the cross. To follow Paul is what he's calling us here as he follows Christ, is to walk in the way of the Christ. What looks weak, what looks like deference, what looks like submission, what looks like being powerless is actually the place of the greatest power. Because those whose power is Jesus-sourced also have their power Jesus-shaped. It's true for Paul and Silas here, and it's true for each and every one of us. And so the reality is that you likely are not going to get crucified or arrested this week. I can't promise anything, but likely not. But we are asked to consider, what does this mean for the ways that I conceive of power and what it means to carry the power of God out into my community? Because what we find in the way of Jesus, in fact, that my power is actually weakness. It's actually humility. It's actually self-giving love, even rejection by the world. As Jesus alluded to the cross in Mark chapter 10, that true power is that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the sort of weakness that in the person of Jesus and in the story of Paul and Silas as it'll continue next week as we see uh, with their interaction with the Roman jailer is that this weakness is actually what God fills with his very own resurrection power. Is that as we walk into the way of weakness, he actually empowers and utilizes that to bring life where there wasn't before. As Paul again wrote in 2 Corinthians, when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, cruciformity being shaped in the way of Jesus, actually unlocks resurrection power and opportunities for renewal and redemption that would not have been there if we had been playing by the world's standards for power. And we, like I said, we're gonna see this next week in the story of the, of the jailer with the hope of the gospel. But for today, I just as we kind of begin to wrap up, I just want you to consider, when you think of the concepts of power and what it means to bring the power of the gospel to your relationships, to your city, what have those been shaped by? Because all too often, like we just talked about with Kanye and Bieber a minute ago, our concepts of the power of the gospel are far too often shaped by influence, by intellect, by having all the right answers, by looking the part, by being the... And Jesus invites us that actually what it looks like is a crucified Savior. Actually, what it looks like is Paul and Silas being arrested and beaten. It looks like weakness. It looks like vulnerability. That this is the sort of power. This is actually the power. Is when we so transformed by Jesus' own death and resurrection, then enter into lives like this. And so for today, the ask is just to invite you to ask, how does this power shape? How does this show up? How does this influence your life, your relationships? If you've been with us through the series, on the first week I asked you to write down three names of people that you're considering and reaching and praying for, is what does weakness and vulnerability and self-giving and deferential love look like for them? What does humility look like? And so as we con 
kind of close, to kind of zoom back out and look at the story from, from a distance. I just want us to consider as we move into a time of response, this story today from two different perspectives, to see yourself in two different places in this story. The first is like we've done through most of the teaching today, to see ourselves in Paul and Silas, to ask what does a Jesus-sourced power in my words, my works, and, and in wonders, what does that look like? What does that mean in my relationships and in my places that I find myself? What does this Jesus-shaped power look like? Self-giving, weakness, deference, service. What does that look like? And how can I, like Paul and Silas, replay at a smaller level the cross? And by doing so, unlock the power of the resurrection within the lives and the stories, the relationships that I find myself in. But second, as we really do, I, this is the one that I want to invite you to, all of us to, is to see yourself not just in Paul and Silas, but to see yourself in this enslaved girl. To identify yourself in this state and place of being powerless to save herself in the face of the, the, the cacophony of, of human and spiritual and some other sort of oppression that you might be feeling. Some sense of powerlessness that you have in your life. Like I said a minute ago, there are some of you that there has been some addiction, some sickness, some thing in your life that you have named as the place where you just don't have the ability to pull it off. And part of believing that in Christ, through the gospel, that he is putting things to right is there is a power that is available to you in Jesus that you could never muster up for yourself. And so for some of you, it's just, I, my prayer would be as you move into a time of response, naming that thing in your past, your present, of what is that place where you currently feel powerless and what would it look like to begin to pray and ask Jesus to bring you that that you're looking for. For others of us, we need to move beyond pretending that we're not in the same place as this enslaved girl. Far too often, so many of us pretend that we have it all together, specifically in a city that loves to highlight image and presentation. That there are many of us, we need to identify just how powerless we are in the midst of all that we're going through, that we do not, in fact, have it all together. That we need to quit pretending about the thing that's always been in the closet, that we can't keep it there anymore. To receive Jesus' words in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, or that is the weak, for they shall inherit the earth. Inasmuch as you pretend that you are not poor in spirit, that you cut yourself off from truly mourning over what you're experiencing, that you pretend that you are not meek, you are not weak, you are cutting yourself off from the kingdom of heaven, from being comforted, from inheriting the earth, from what Jesus calls being blessed. And so for Jesus... To be poor in spirit is not to find yourself as something that you're not, but to name yourself for where you really are. And we are all invited today to experience the power of gospel, a power of the gospel that is sourced in the kingship of the resurrected Jesus and now is shaped by him, shaping our constructs and our thoughts of what power actually looks like as we move into the world. But also, more than just being sourced in Jesus and being shaped by him, it's an invitation to be saved by Jesus.